Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast where we hear from mothers who are artists and creators, sharing their joys and issues around trying to be a mother and continue to make art. Regular topics include mum guilt, identity, the day-to-day juggle, mental health and how children manifest in their art. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. I have a passion for mental wellness and a background in early childhood education. You can find links to my guests and topics they discuss in the show notes, along with music played, a link to follow the podcast on Instagram and how to get in touch. All music used on the podcast is done so with permission. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Bowendick people as the traditional custodians of the land and water which this podcast is recorded on and pays respects to the relationship the traditional owners have with the land and water, as well as acknowledging past, present and emerging elders. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dr Erica Ball. Erica is a classical music composer, violinist, pianist and educator from Portland, Maine in the USA and a mother of two boys. Erica received her PhD in music composition from the University of Pennsylvania, where she studied with Anna Wesner, Jim Primosh and Jay Rees. Translating everyday life into music is at the heart of Erica's whimsical and playful works. Inspired by the natural world, a childhood spent dreaming of becoming a ballerina and studies of 20th century American avant-garde music. Erica is equally at home writing lyrical melodies that sweep across an orchestra and collaborating with animators and circus dancers. With an affinity for layered complexity, Erica's music portrays clouds building up on the horizon as a summer thunderstorm approaches, or the busy sounds of passengers on a subway station. Erica's music has been performed by numerous ensembles, including the De Capo Chamber Players, pianist Blair McMillan, the International Contemporary Ensemble, and the American Symphony Orchestra. Her works have been heard across the country in Chicago, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, and around the world in Germany and New Zealand. Today we chat about the lack of representation of women in the classical music canon, the way that the arts are undervalued and underfunded in our culture, and how amazing it is to have an artist mother who just gets what you do. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. How are you? Good. It's nice to meet you, Alison. Yeah, lovely to meet you too, Erica. It's lovely to have you on. Yeah. Um, it's been it's been really interesting to listen to like past episodes and like there's there's definitely like common threads no matter where like artists moms are in the world. We're all kind of dealing with these same things. Oh, um, it's been really it's been reassuring to know. So. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're not the first person to say that, that reassurance. It's yeah, yeah, it's certainly something that people gain from it. So that is really good. I'm really pleased that it's helpful and makes people feel like they're 
doing okay you know like yeah. what they're going through is is completely normal and they're not alone so yeah it's a good feeling but um yeah so you're in portland in Maine, yes. is that right? In it's Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> Maine. There's another Portland. Okay, <laughs> I've got a Portland an hour down the road from us here. In oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very big though. It's not like hardly anyone lives there. But um, so, what's the weather been like over there at the moment for you? Um, we just got a big snowstorm. I think we got like six or seven inches on Friday. Oh wow. Um, so this morning I was out cross-country skiing with my kids in the woods and oh, I just got cool. back from a, from a run on our icy roads. That's why I'm a little flush still. <laughs> yeah, so oh, definitely awesome. the middle of winter here. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Oh, that's awesome. We don't get anywhere near that here. We don't get snow. <laughs> we don't get cold. It's just, yeah. That's what I love. I love asking people from around the world what their weather's like because mine's yeah. so boring. <laughs> <laughs> So you're a composer, Erica. How did you get into music when you first started out? So I started playing instruments and then I didn't get into composing until kind of late in the game. Um, so in high school, I went to a wonderful program called the Walden School for Young Musicians. And it's a five week long program in New Hampshire and it's specifically for young composers. So they were teaching a variety of things, musicianship, music theory, but ultimately composing. And I had never really written a piece before and I wanted to try it out. So the Walden School gave me this opportunity. And then at the end of the five-week program, your music is performed by like some of the best musicians in, from New York City often. Oh. And what a thrill to like have written something as like a 16-year-old and then to hear these like hot shots play it on stage it's like <laughs> wow and and that's kind of what hooked me um and I had I kind of already had the realization that I was not going to have a career as like a performing musician that that just wasn't the thing for me mm -hmm. um but I loved music so much and composition seemed like well this is something that I can do that I also really love that I don't have to spend you know those like agonizing hours in the practice rooms and like the audition circuit and all that um, yeah. And then I went to college and I was really fortunate that I studied with Joan Tower, um, who's probably, at least in the state, she's one of the leading women composers. Um, she's in her eighties now. Yep. Um, so she's been doing it a long time. Certainly one of the trailblazers for, for women in the classical music industry. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate. She kind of took me under her wing and I was the only woman in the department writing music when I was there. Yeah. Um, so, so that was really special. And then after undergrad, I, I kind of decided that I was going to, to take one chance. And yeah. I said, I'll apply to one graduate school for composition. And then I applied to like law schools as well, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> like totally different career path. And, um, and I got in and I was like, well, the worst thing that happens is I waste four years of my life doing something that I love, right? And then I can always still decide to go to law school. And I was very fortunate that the program that I got into at the University of Pennsylvania was a free ride. 
So like you, you do have to work, you be a TA and all of that jazz, but um, it wouldn't put me into debt to go to grad school. So, so I went and then you know, I've been composing ever since. So that, that's kind of my route into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how things work out, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. you had that law thing. I bet you would have been disappointed if you had to do law though. Like you would have been that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So what instruments do you play? So I play piano, as you can see here with my giant baby grand that takes up half the room. Um, So I play piano and violin. I started piano when I was like two or three years old and violin shortly thereafter. Um, And I I still am very active playing. I don't really love to perform, um, but I do a lot of studio teaching. So besides composing, teach a lot of kids and adults um, piano and violin as well yeah so you're very busy music is your is your whole life basically yeah yeah that's awesome that's so good I love it I was looking on your website at all the different sort of styles of music that you've composed for, um, which is really cool. I used to be in, I used to do um, a vocal group. So I'm used to like SSA and SSAA because I was with, mm-hmm. with females. And every now and then we'd get to do an SATB because we'd join up with, an, with a men's group and it was so exciting. So I was like <laughs> looking at like you do vocal, um, which is really cool, um, and chamber music and orchestra music and also for individual um, instruments as well. So you basically do everything really, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a, I mean, a lot of composers, um, you know, kind of write for all different types of instrumentations. There's, there's some that have managed to kind of find their niche and like just write vocal music or just write opera or the rare composer these days that can kind of make a living just writing orchestral pieces. Um, but for most of us, it's kind of, you just got to write for whoever is willing to play your music. And sometimes it's an orchestra and sometimes it's a solo performer. Yes. So really do you, doing everything. Yeah. Do you have a favorite, like a preference that you like to write for? That's a good question. I, I love writing for strings, um, as a violinist myself. So strings is probably one of my favorites, um, Piano is, even though that's the other instrument that I play, is very intimidating because there's there's so many possibilities with it, um, and there's so much repertoire, right? So there's there's so much history of the instrument. Yeah. Um, but I, I did just finish up a suite of piano preludes, and I got I got pretty excited once I was into them yeah. and, and writing them. And then right now I'm, I'm going to be getting started on a piece for string quartet and piano, so piano quintet. Mm-hmm. So that'll that'll be an interesting challenge. I love writing for strings. I've written a couple of string quartets before, but now I'm going to have that challenge of integrating the piano into the ensemble. Mm. So. So do you get your work from people that commission you to do work? Is that part of what you do? Yeah. So right now I've been able to sort of cobble together 
a bunch of consortium commissions. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ask people I know, friends, colleagues, friends of friends, would you be interested in joining this consortium? And basically it's a way of sort of having these performers pool their resources to pay me to write for them. So yeah. it's not so much of a big ask for them, but I still get paid fairly for my work. Yeah. Um, so the first time I did this was with three different youth orchestras in the Philadelphia area, which is where I was originally from and up until a year ago. Yeah. And we had three youth orchestras, two in Philadelphia, one in Houston, Texas, um, just sort of people that I knew and they pulled their resources together. I wrote a piece for them. And so since then I've sort of developed this consortium model. And I did that with the piano preludes that I just finished up writing and the piano quintet that I'm about to get started on is also a consortium commission. Yeah, cool. That's a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah. Is that something that you sort of came up with yourself or is that something that sort of is fairly recognized that goes on? Um, I think it's it's becoming more of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are definitely some other composers who are doing it. And certainly, like at the orchestral level, um, you know, if an orchestra is going to commission a composer, oftentimes they do consortiums. So that way the composer gets like an East Coast premiere and a West Coast premiere. So yeah. you're trying to make sure that your players are not all in New York City and kind of stepping on each other's toes when they premiere the piece. Yeah. Um, but I think it's becoming a more common model, which is great because otherwise the only way you get your music played is if you win these competitions and they're, they're really hard to, yeah. to get. And, um, you know, there, there's lots of problems with the competitions themselves, the way they're organized. Are they equitable? Are they, mm. um, are they discriminatory against certain groups of people? So yeah. this model is really working for me, the consortiums. Yeah, yeah good. You're listening to The Art of Being a Mom with my mom, Alison Newman. I wanted to ask about the some of the titles of your pieces. Um, there's a couple that have sort of got like two meanings or hidden meanings in them. Um, mm -hmm. the, for example, there's one, it's called The Resilient Sound, but then through the use of um, brackets, says the silent sound. Is that, if I got that right, have I interpreted that right? Yeah, so I, I love word games. I love anagrams and Scrabble and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I've always been really interested in the poetry of E.E. E. Cummings and the interesting things that he does, like with the shapes of the words on the page and just the way that you can, can play with words and like you said, create sort of double meanings using parentheses or brackets um so yeah I have played around with some some interesting titles of my own um and that one was sort of like playing around with the word resilient but yet there's the word silent in it and those two can kind of go against each other in terms of their meaning um so playing around with the dualities contained within those words yeah so it's like you can send your own sort of message um through the music but then also through that title you sort of get people mm -hmm. thinking about 
the deeper meaning behind things, I suppose. It's not just, you know, it's not just maybe as they expect it. There's there's more going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And with with contemporary classical music, you know, most people, if they're if they're going to a chamber music concert and they see like a composer on the piece that they don't a composer on the program they don't recognize they're like uh-oh what is this is it going to be weird sounds that I don't understand and yeah. so anything that I as a composer can give them to sort of latch onto to help them derive meaning from the piece mm -hmm. um I find helps with the overall reception of the work so if it's a, if it's an intriguing title if it's a title that has some scene depicted in it or has some emotional content it gives it sort of sets the stage for them when they're listening mm. um and I also I don't know if you saw some of the artwork that's on my website like the yeah. covers of my pieces yeah. um so my my mother is an artist and she has always graciously donated her art or some, sometimes I've been fortunate enough to be able to to pay her for her artwork yeah. um but it graces the covers of my scores and I think that that visual element is really important for the performers as well, because they're playing it for the first time. Yep. And to have like a visual representation of the piece as a way into the interpretation of it can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. it helps to, to sort of set the mood for them of where, where this is, where this has come from and how it's to be sort of interpreted and presented, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And also I think it's cool that it's sort of like, you've got your own sort of niche in that way that people will remember like you said people that might not know you or um they'll go oh that's that that's that lady that makes the cool like titles and like you know what I mean like people <laughs> yeah. connect that with you and remember will remember you for that mm -hmm. um I don't know I just thought of that as you were saying cool. <laughs> Yeah, I love on your website you your sort of motto like translating everyday life into music. I think it's just such a I know it sounds simplistic, but it's such a it's a huge way of describing music, isn't it? It's like it's it's just that normal everyday things that happen to us, but they can be turned into this incredible piece or incredible painting or incredible body of work. It's just I really love that analogy. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> It took me a long time to to figure that out that that's what a lot of my music is about mm -hmm. because in when you think of like the canon and like Bach and Beethoven and all these like great composers that we hold up as like genius white European men and we put them on a pedestal yeah. and um like that's that's not what my music is about and you know it's me going on a run and hearing the sound of water as it hits like ice in a stream and makes this like really interesting tinkly kind of sound that's not quite pitched but has some pitch to it and has some regularity and then going to the piano and seeing if I can recreate that like that that's what the music is about to me or it's about I have a string quartet that's kind of about 
different episodes in a cat's life. Yeah. And, yeah, so and one one. Of, yeah. And one of them, a couple of the movements are about napping because cats <laughs> nap all the time. And, yeah. um, and they all are derived from children's lullabies. So there's one that centers on twinkle, twinkle, and there's a different napping movement that centers on um, taps and, you know, they don't, they're not going to hear them that way, but those are like the bits of material that I pulled from them because I was, you know, getting ready to have my own kids and thinking a lot about what it would mean to be a mom and, um, you know, what songs I was going to sing to my children. And, and that's where the music came from. It wasn't some like grand idea about what it means to be a sleeping cat. Um, it was just sort of banal kind of inspiration. Yeah, but yeah. I think at some level, I think, um, I, th- I, don't, I don't know, it's like, the, oh, I don't know how to word it now. People, like, because I write my, I write music just like as a, as a song, singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. and people are like, how did you get that idea? What did you do? And most of my stuff comes, like, similarly, like I'd be out for a walk and I'd just, I don't know, just get a tune in my head or, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot simpler than what people think I think like I don't want to make it seem that it's super easy but inspiration comes from everywhere like it's all around Mm -hmm. us all the time and it's just it is part of like life just comes into you what you're creating I know that sounds like I've really dumbed it down and really simplified it but I don't know no that's exactly what it is yeah, yeah, it's just always there for us if we can be open to it I suppose and look at things through different eyes and or ears and, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, interpret things differently. loved how you just said genius white European men it's like (laughs) I feel like there's a there's a there's a bit more of a conversation to be had there (laughs) oh yes (laughs) is it I don't know I'm not in the I'm not in the classical world is it is that still what people want is that what they're drawn to is that what people are still sort of holding as the I don't know the marker of unfortunately um the classical music industry is decades if not um hundreds of years behind the rest of the world and and it's it's in recent years probably within like the last in the last two years especially with the pandemic but also within like the last five to ten years there's been a real awakening and a real beginning to reckon with the past of about the history of classical music and how, you know, history is always written, written by the winners, by the people who have the power, by the people who are in charge. And so we have Bach, we have Beethoven, we have Debussy, we have Ravel, we are missing all the women, mm. not to mention all the musics from different cultures or the musics that, you know, were, were popular, but weren't part of like the religious order. Um, because a lot of classical music comes out of the church music and come comes from that patronage model yeah and so so it's a real problem within the classical music industry and thankfully the industry is starting to recognize it as a problem and starting to change but there's we're kind of straddling 
um, at least I'm finding straddling these generations of, you know, there's some older musicians who don't want to change and don't want the industry to change. And then there's a really strong cohort of younger musicians who want to be the solution and want to make real fundamental changes um, to make things more equitable, to be rewriting history, to include composers like Amy Beach, like Florence Price, like Margaret Bonds. And it's, it's really important to me that that is also a part of my work as a living female composer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my own studio, when I'm teaching students, I make sure that everyone's always playing a piece by a woman composer. Um, not allowed to just play music that's by Bach and Beethoven. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a real problem. And and I think it's for people who aren't in the industry, it can kind of come as a shock because so much of the world has become accustomed to sort of recognizing talent wherever it exists and not just sort of in these siloed areas. Mm. But it's a it's a big problem in our industry. Mm. Do, is the audience sort of driving change as well? Do they want it? Are they wanting to hear new things? Is that are they sort of hungry for that? I don't know, modernization of the, of their, what's the word? I don't know. Uh, Modernization of the canon. Um, Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that's a really interesting question because I think it depends on which part of the audience we're talking about. Yeah. And I have found that, that older generations often are a little bit more resistant to this change or to, ha- to hearing pieces that are new or being premiered. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, if you present new music in the right way, if you kind of set it up, if you give people information, if you play a piece more than once, because you might not like Beethoven the first time you hear it, but because it's played so often, it's a part of our popular culture we hear in Looney Tunes, because mm. it's sort of everywhere, yeah. we we end up gravitating towards it. And I think there's a lot to be said for how new music is presented to an audience that can then make them fall in love with it. Um, and I think I think audiences are more and more um, becoming interested in hearing new music by hearing music by people who are living now and music that responds to our times. Mm, absolutely. Um, just on that too, I noticed there was a piece that you'd um, written. It was like a Sorry, I can't remember exactly what context it was in, but it was a retelling, I suppose, or a reimagining of um, Down by the Riverside, um, of War No More, um, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. Um, Knowing the words to it and everything, I was like, oh, that is really cool. Um, I just thought then as we're talking about current stuff, like that's, I don't know, I mean, what's going on right now with Russia and Ukraine? It's like there could be, there's so many pieces that could be, like people could hear now that relate to what's happening now you know why do we have to keep listening to stuff that doesn't sort of align with our current political climate or social climate like just mm-hmm. because it's a familiar tune why does that mean we have to keep hearing it over and over again and like we hear it when we're on hold on the phone or we hear it on a background of a commercial like why why is that so important to us to keep hearing it you know I don't know yeah <laughs> yeah it's- it's a definite thing. I mean, you, if you think of like popular musics, they they move on, right? The yes. song that was popular last year is not popular this year. And that's kind yeah. of part of the, the excitement of it. And in the classical music world, we like haven't moved on from like the past 200 years. Yes. We're still trying to make progress. 
<laughs> um, and it's very interesting, isn't yeah. it? So it's, it's very interesting. I wonder if it's, I don't know, I'm going to draw a long bow here, the, the amount of money that people make out of the pop music industry, is it because it's driven, it's, a, it's um, what's the word, it's a commercialised entity, so they're always trying to pump out new things and make more money. I don't know. Is that is that a fair thing to say? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's part of it. Um, I mean, if you think classical music at one point for certain populations was the popular music of the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just kind of become this like niche, tiny little corner of the music industry now. Yeah. But you're, you're changing that. So that is awesome. I love that. Um, so you mentioned, so we are, we are going to get to your children at some point. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you're, you're a teacher as well. Um, that I love how you said you, you make sure there's some feet, there's always like a female composer's work that people are working on. Um, do you find that, that the, and I guess this is going to be the same as the last question about the audience, depending on age, but are your students um, wanting new pieces? Are they looking for for stuff they've never heard before to play or are they still going back to the old faithful sort of yeah most of my students don't realize before they come to me that there is new music out there um, they just want to learn how to play the piano or the violin and usually that's through some exposure that they've had to classical music in general mm -hmm. and I think it's when they encounter me and I'm like I write music I am a composer oh, what is that? What does that sound like? Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've yet to have a student who doesn't like that about me as a teacher that I'm, that I'm actively creating music. Mm -hmm. And I will frequently play my own music for my students. So when I was working on the piano preludes, I actually played some rough drafts for students and I asked them like, well, what descriptive word comes to mind? Because I can't figure it out. And I was kind of helping them helping them give me some ideas for the piece. Yeah. And they loved that to sort of have a window into the process and to know what was going on. And as far as exposing them to different types of music, I still am very much like a classically trained musician. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what I teach. I don't teach jazz improvisation because that's not my thing. I don't know how to do it. Um, but I am very careful that I'm incorporating music from outside the traditional canon. Mm -hmm. So for example, female composers, not just current female composers, but historical female composers that aren't sort of in most of the anthologies that we find when we're teaching sort of graded piano studies. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's another way I expose them to it. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, good for you. That's so awesome to hear. Love Thanks. that. <laughs>
All right, let's get to your family then. Um, how many children do you have? Tell me a little bit about them. I have two little boys. I have a almost six-year-old and a three-year-old. Yeah, cool. I've got a six-year-old. <laughs> it's a good time of life being a six-year-old. It is. So are they into your and they play music. Are they sort of come in and bang on your beautiful piano? And... They they do like to bang on the piano. I also have you can't see it; it's off screen here. But I have a cupboard filled with like hand percussion, different things, boom whackers, which are these like big plastic tubes that you whack on the ground and it makes a, a rough sounding pitch. Um, tambourines, maracas, egg shakers. They love going in there and having family band time. Yeah. And it's quite amazing the amount of cacophony that they can create. And I can actually sit at my desk and tune it all out and do work. And they'll be sitting here on the floor just making a racket. Yeah. But it keeps them busy for a good 20 minutes. So yeah. if I have to deal with the noise, I will. Oh, geez, you do well. And it's sort of, I think, um, like energetically, it's sort of, you know, it's it's getting so much energy through their body as well. Like, I don't know, oh, I, yes. I work in childcare, so I'm, I'm used to seeing children go completely bonkers and then completely flat. So it's like, <laughs> I just have this massive build up of energy that's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know, do your kids do the same sort of thing? Then? Oh, yes. The goal of the day is always like, get them as tired as possible so they sleep and they go to bed early and stay asleep. <laughs> yeah. oh. So with those ages of, of your boys, when do you do your work? Um, is it sort of an evening thing or are they um, in care so you can actually do what you need to do? So right now I, I also, so I do all different things. So I'm currently working a full-time job as an arts administrator. Um, so I'm sort of running all of the administrative stuff for a professional string quartet here in Maine. So that's what I'm doing roughly like the nine to five hours. So I have fortunately a lot of flexibility because I'm working from home for that. Yeah. And then I teach about eight hours of studio a week. So that's students who come, come to my home and I teach them piano and violin. And then somewhere in there, I squeeze in my composition. <laughs> Oftentimes it's like really early in the morning or it's late yeah. at night or the nice thing about composing as opposed to practicing an instrument is that I don't have to be physically at my instrument to do it. So yeah. like I'll be out on the run and I'll be thinking about the music and kind of testing out ideas in my head. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm able to do it kind of squeezed in there. Yeah. Um, I'm also really fortunate that my partner is very supportive of my creativity and he'll take the kids out of the house on the weekend for a couple of hours and I'll get like a big chunk of time yep. where I can really work mm -hmm. um, but no set schedule unfortunately <laughs> just happens when it happens yep. <laughs> do you find that hard then after you come back from your run and you've got these ideas to actually come back in and either notate it or record it onto something because you're coming back into the like mum role is that you find well, that hard it's so hard to switch between the different roles and to be constantly interrupted. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably what drives me more nuts is when I'm in the middle of composing, you know, maybe I'm like writing something at the piano while they're eating breakfast because yeah. they most of the time can eat peacefully. <laughs> and one of them will come running in here. I need some more milk or whatever the problem happens to be. And it's like, yeah. oh, there goes the idea. It's just gone poof out of my head. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've gotten into the habit of 
leaving myself video recordings as little messages. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to sit down at the piano and I know there's even a chance I might get interrupted, I'll just hit record. And that way, anything that I play, anything that I've been kind of talking to myself out loud through giving myself ideas, at least I have a record of it and I can kind of get back into that moment via the video recording. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a good idea. <laughs> oh gosh. I'm feeling your pain there. I, yeah. I think interruptions is probably the thing that frustrates me the most, really. It's just you're on a roll and then it's like, I need some cheese. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying earlier about when you were writing the cat piece, um, when you were thinking about what it would be like to be a mother. Can you expand on that a little bit more about sort of how you were feeling when you knew your life was about to change completely? Um, so I, we very sort of deliberately made the decision like, okay, we're going to have kids. And it came apart mostly because I, so after grad school, I went on the job market for one year and you know, I got, I got a couple of interviews. I got to the final round for one interview, all for sort of tenure track, uh, composition or theory professors yeah. at the university and went through that whole process and realized that it was either going to take a really long time and multiple years of doing this whole kind of circus mm -hmm. to find the right position for me, or I would have to do a series of visiting assistant professorships where you, you know, get hired for one year, maybe two years at an institution, and then you leave and you go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, or I would never get a position. And none of those options really sounded good to me. Um, they don't have stability. It's a lot of sort of giving up a lot of your life for these academic institutions that who knows how they're going to treat you. Mm. And then then you also have the tenure clock, right? So even if you did land a tenure track position, you're on the tenure clock, not a great time to be having kids. It's already stressful enough. Yeah. And I made the decision that that wasn't the life for me. And I would rather have my kids young and maybe give up that dream of teaching in a university and have my kids young and get them out of the house while I'm young too. <laughs> um, because, you know, the, the composing, if I had to stop for a couple of years, which I did when my kids were, were very young, I did, there were a couple of years where I just didn't write a single note. Um, mm -hmm. I'd rather do that then and then have the rest of my life to do the creative stuff. It will always be there. So, yeah. 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 So it was like an actual decision of how I want my life to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you said how you didn't write a note, were you playing at all? Was like music still a part of your life? Oh, yes, very, very much so playing. Um, yeah. But I found that so I, I graduated grad school and had a couple months off and then ended up pregnant with number one. Yeah. And I was teaching as an adjunct during the pregnancy and we had just bought a house and moved in. So there was like a lot of stuff going on, um, yeah. being homeowners, fixing the house and dealing with morning sickness, adjuncting a couple of classes, dealing with that, still kind of trying to apply to some jobs. Mm -hmm. And 
And composition just kind of fell by the wayside. And I think part of that was also related to how intense graduate school is, just the amount of work and the amount of pressure that you're under. And mm -hmm. I really rushed to finish my dissertation as quickly as possible because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be in the position where I would lose my funding, but still have to finish my dissertation. Yeah. So I really pushed to finish it while I still had funding. Yeah. And I was just kind of burnt out. I was, yeah, <laughs> I was done for a little while. And, yeah. and I, I was being creative in other things. I found that, you know, learning, there's so much education that you have to do when you're pregnant, just learning about what's going on with your body, learning about, okay, what is it going to be like to be a mom? How am I going to prepare myself for this? So there were other things going on that felt somewhat creative. And I was still constantly playing music and I was playing the community orchestra and playing with friends and still teaching a lot. So music has always been there. Just the composition yeah. stopped for a few years. Yeah, that's understandable. It's like, you just mm -hmm. can't do everything, can you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even if you, I don't know, you have the time to do it, it'd be like, we actually need to rest at some point, don't you? Like you just mm -hmm. can't. I mean, some people probably do, but I know myself, you, you just cannot push through because you just need to fill up at some point. Yes. <laughs> For the next round. When you are writing your um, pieces, you talked about getting influence from everywhere. Do you find that your children influence your composing? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think more than anything, it's their curiosity and watching them, watching them learn, watching how they interact with the world that has in some ways given me permission to do the same. Yeah. And like that moment that I was describing earlier where I was on a run and I heard the water, the stream and the ice, I don't think I would have necessarily noticed that before kids. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think parts of me have always been in tune with just sort of listening in a way that maybe non-musicians don't because music is such a part of my life, but I'm not sure if I would have stopped. And I, I literally stopped on the side of the trail and just kind of stood there listening to it. And then I was playing with a stick in the stream. And I don't know that I would have done that if I didn't have kids. Yeah. Um, just sort of this permission to engage with the world in a more childlike sense of curiosity. Mm. I think that's more than anything how they've sort of inspired and worked their way into my music. Yeah, now that definitely makes sense. I feel like mm. as adults, we sort of feel like we have to behave in a certain way and like, when you were talking there about stopping, I remember one day I'd stop, I went, was walking and I stopped to look at these flowers and someone drove past and they were like, what are you doing? Like, you know, yelled a bit, <laughs> you know, had a sledge at me. And I was like, I'm looking at the flowers. Like, you know, what's the big yeah. deal? You know, I think, I don't know, somewhere in adult life, it's sort of like, no, you're not allowed to be playful and, you know, that anymore. It's like, you have to be serious and grown up now. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I feel like, being an artist or a creative person you sort of you have to have that in you or else what would you be inspired by like 
you know, that just you have to be curious and and stop and play with sticks, you know. <laughs> I feel like yeah. it's just it's just part of life. I don't know. It's it's a very interesting thing. And the more I talk to artistic mums, it's like there's this thread that goes through that you you are different in a really good way. Like you you don't necessarily have these hang-ups about what people that judge you or people care worry about things. And I don't know, it's just a different way of looking at life. I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I don't know. I just think, I don't know. I'm going off on I'm babbling a bit now, so I'll stop. No, I, I think there was, there was sort of a, in the back of my head when I stopped on the trail, and this is like busy trails through our woods. We're in the city, so people are walking their dogs and stuff. Yeah. There was a part of me that, that kind of said, what if someone comes down the trail? You're going to be the yeah. adult on the side of the trail playing with sticks in the stream and like tapping the ice to see what kind of sound it makes she's like so what yeah so what they they see me like enjoying myself and like experimenting and being curious and they'll probably just walk right past me maybe they'll maybe they'll be curious and ask what I'm doing but probably they'll just walk right past yeah yeah there you go I love that oh dear a thing that we talk about in Australia a lot and I'm finding that it, it is quite a um a worldwide phenomenon this mum guilt um mm. and I put that in inverted commas um yeah. what's your thoughts on mum guilt <laughs> oh boy um I think it it's a very real thing um and I think it's it's something that's been constructed by our cultures and by our society. I don't think it's a, mm. an innate part of being a, a human mother, but I think at this point it, it is because of the culture and the societies that we're in. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's torturous and it's, it's not something that I, that I think a lot of men experience. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are some that experience you know, some version of this, like parental, parental guilt, but I think there's something, there's something special about being a mom experiencing it just because of all of the different expectations that are put on women. Mm. And, and it's definitely something that I've wrestled with and within the, the classical music industry, you know, there's, it's taken a long time for orchestras to accept women as violinists in their sections. So, you know, within my lifetime, the Vienna Philharmonic, for example, like wouldn't allow women to play in the ensemble. Oh, and so, you know, there's sort of discrimination writ large against women, let alone women who might be mothers, like that full Hmm. embodiment of being a woman. And um, so there's sort of, the, the industry and women's place within it but then there's also like the family and the home life and that feeling like if you're if you have any spare moment that's free it should be like devoted to your kids and your family and mm. it's really hard to then say no 
I don't have to go and do that thing, or it's okay for me to miss bedtime and be composing because that is also important to me. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, for, for example, I've, I've been to concerts and by myself and people who knew me and they would say, you know, make remarks like, oh, you're missing bedtime. I'm so, you know, I'm glad you came to the concert. Like, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to miss bedtime. And I'm like, I love missing bedtime. It is my least favorite part of day. I am so <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> my husband is perfectly capable of putting our children to bed. Yeah. He does it most nights, even if I'm home. Yes. Isn't that, it's no. just interesting how the judgment, people just assume that it's like, mm -hmm. that's what you should be doing. You're a mom. That's what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's like, hello, they have two parents. Like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, it really frustrates me. And comments like that, they just don't go very far to help. You know, it's like, it sets you back. If you've, if you've yeah. got, if you were feeling a little bit funny, like, oh, you know, I, I, prob I wanted to do this or that or the other. And you go, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. It's okay. And then someone makes a comment and it just drags you straight back into that. Oh, no, I should have done that because now everyone thinks I'm a bad mother and blah, blah, blah. You know, exactly. There's a yeah. lot to be said for for how other people's comments, how, how much of an impact it makes on mums. And, like, yeah, I don't know. Yes. It's a big yeah. frustrating topic that one I really it is really struggle with that yeah. yeah but I loved how you said it's okay for me for me to miss bedtime because there's other things that are important to you it's like mm -hmm. I don't know it, just, and, it, it's, it, and you're right it's hard to like even if you've made yourself a priority and you've kind of laid aside the mom guilt and you've been able to engage with the activity those comments are so hurtful mm because they regenerate that guilt with inside yourself, even if you've been able to successfully overcome it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like always lurking there in the background, just like, oh, but I am, I should be with my kids or, mm -hmm. or, you know, like sort of the, the more simple guilt that's not even directly pertaining to your craft as an artist. Um, things like, oh, I, I didn't, pack them a perfect lunch like I just threw stuff in their lunchbox and I didn't write them a note on Valentine's Day I just like you know that yeah. kind of thing and there are these ridiculous expectations that moms are held up to mm. and um I think it also helps to kind of find your tribe of moms mm -hmm. um I have a couple of good mom friends who they know that my house is a mess. They know that my laundry lives on my bedroom floor for a couple of days before it ever gets put away. And they're cool with it because they also do the same thing. And it's about sort of letting down that facade of being like this perfect woman and just saying like, no, I fail all the time in my household duties and taking care of my kids and my professional life. Like I am not perfect and have other women who can be comfortable with you and say the same thing mm. is really it's really heartening and it it really helps the overall situation oh yeah yeah I definitely agree with that it's like you just don't feel you feel quite comfortable just to to be yourself and to you don't have to feel like you're going to be judged by them mm -hmm. like you're all in it together it's not a competition you know exactly yeah.
And the other thing I love to talk about is identity, about how your own identity changed when you had your children, when you became a mum. Did you sort of go through a shift in that regard? Yes, because the the composition kind of stopped Mm. for a good three years in there. And and it was something I worried about, like, am I ever going to be able to write again? And maybe all my creative energy is just going into raising my kids and that's mm. where it's going to be. Yep. And I, I felt kind of lost and I felt like I had lost a part of myself for a while. And even, even though I was making music and teaching and still engaged with the music community, it didn't feel the same. It didn't feel the same as creating myself and as actually composing Mm. and it 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 took a lot of a lot of work to get back into composing a lot of fear a lot of judging myself like what if you were never any good at this to begin with and it's going to be so hard and it actually so the first piece I think I wrote after the birth of my second was a piece of music that my grandfather asked me to write um so my grandfather had studied piano with me for a couple of years um, when I was in Philadelphia. And that was always, it was always really special to have these lessons with him. Um, and he, he had this passage from a Psalm that he wanted me to, to set to music. And, um, and I took, I took on the challenge, didn't have anyone prepared to sing it, but I was like, okay, I'll just, this is an exercise for me and I'll see if I can do this again. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this piece and ended up, ended up getting performed um, at St. David's Church in Baltimore. But that was sort of the, the baby step that I took back into composition. Yeah. And I was also really fortunate that my, my mom is an artist. And I think there's something really special about having a mom who's an artist who is so supportive of my own creativity. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that moms are supportive of creative daughters in all sorts of ways, but to have someone who's lived it themselves Mm. is, it's probably one of the best things um, that I have going for me because she knows how important it is. She knows how hard it is to place the priority on my creative work. And Mm. sort of right when I started getting back into composing, she would take my kids for a couple of hours during the week and she would say, you are not allowed to clean your house for <laughs> hours. You are not allowed to go grocery shopping. I want to hear what you have done for you during those few hours. Mm. And to have to have that sort of account forced accountability um, really sort of got me back on the track of composing yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and to, to someone to see the value in what you're doing as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I've talked to some mums who have their their in-laws or even their own parents have sort of seen it as fluffing about, like you just, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's like there's a lot of emphasis emphasis placed on the monetary value of what you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you're not really really working, um, so it's not that important. You know what I mean? Like it's a real real whole new ballgame when people don't see the value in what you're actually creating and, adding to society and culture and you know yeah yeah that that is a huge problem and I mean I don't know what it's like in Australia for how like arts funding works but here in the states it is (laughs) it is a mess in the United States um 
I know a couple of the countries in Europe have slightly better models and a little bit more support for musicians in the classical industry, but the way that arts are undervalued in our culture Mm -hmm. and yet so much money is made off of them, like in the pop music industry, streaming services and all of this sort of exploitation that goes on. Yeah, absolutely. We have a big issue in Australia that, um, that was certainly brought out through the whole pandemic situation that mm-hmm. the sport the sports side of Australia kept going they made allowances for like the footy teams to travel interstate even though people weren't supposed to be traveling and everything kept going except the arts and people were just you know obviously losing their incomes everything was falling to pieces and it still hasn't been fully addressed that what happened to like literally arts are everywhere like television and radio and everything that we pick up and use is being created by someone in some mm-hmm. way. And it's like, we just don't value it. We just don't see the importance of it in our culture. And it's really pisses me off. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, all this time, the footy, like people had concerts scheduled to travel around Australia, but they couldn't because the, the borders were closed, but yet hundreds of football players were traveling wherever they wanted to. And it just like, come on. Mm-hmm. It really, really show the, the huge divide between what what our our culture values. Incredibly disappointing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting you said about the different places in Europe. I saw on the telly the other day that Ireland might be might be introducing just a, like a universal income for artists. Yes. Yeah, oh that. my god, how amazing would that be? Like, <laughs> it would just you would just have the freedom to to create you wouldn't have to worry about how you're going to you know pay the bills or whatever you can just imagine the explosion that's going to happen creativity in that area it'd just be amazing mm-hmm. I mean, not <sighs> to mention all the people who leave the arts mm. so many talented amazing artists musicians dancers playwrights they leave the arts because you can't make a living in it. And there's, you know, there's a point in your life where you have to decide, do I want to start a family? And if I'm going to start a family, I want to be financially stable. And what does that mean for my creative practice? And I I was really fortunate that, you know, my, my partner is a public school teacher, you know, neither of us are ever going to be, you know, wealthy in our lifetime, but he has a stable job. He has really good health insurance. And so like the pressure was thankfully never on me to provide, you know, the, the big income and health insurance for our family. Um, but you know, I know, I know plenty of couples who both of them are musicians and that is, it's an incredibly hard life just because there's no stability within our industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I've seen lots of people leave as a result, which is, yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's detrimental to all of us because we're losing out on on their talents and what talents they could pass on to students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole the whole industry is just poorer for it, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting wound up now. <laughs> <laughs> just so frustrating. Oh dear. Well, I, I have had some some interesting experiences recently with other women composers reaching out to me. Yeah. Um, primarily, you know, people who are, who are like out of undergrad, not necessarily in graduate school, or um, or are coming back to music after leaving a different career path behind, 
And I think there's a lack of mentoring in our industry, Mm -hmm. women mentoring other women. And like, I was very fortunate. I studied with Joan Tower. And when I went to graduate school, I studied with Anna Wiesner. So, you know, I've, I've studied with these other women composers, but there, there's a lack of community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's important for, for young women in particular to be able to have conversations with, with someone and be able to talk about things like, you know, if I take this job overseas and move to, you know, move to a different country for a couple of years because I'm following my boyfriend and I want to be with him, what does that mean for my career as a musician? And that's probably a conversation that a young woman might not be comfortable having with a, a male figure. Mm-hmm. Um, they might be, you know, concerned whether they're going to be judged for that decision or whatnot. Um, so, so that's been kind of interesting and I definitely don't have the bandwidth for it right now, but I think in the, in the future, I would, I would love to, to start some type of mentorship program specifically for, for women composers who are kind of like on the cusp of that sort of professional, um, becoming a professional composer. They've left school behind, they've done all, done all that hard work. And now it's, how do I make this into a living for myself? How do I, if I'm going to start a family, how do I navigate that in my career at the same time? Yeah. Um, That's yeah. awesome. That is so great. You should definitely do that. <laughs> I got I got to wait a couple more years. I got to get like both kids in grade school. So yeah. I have a few more hours in the day, but oh. eventually, eventually. Yeah. That's so valuable. That's just incredible. Um, on that though, did you have anyone around you that you could sort of lean off with the children side of things? Was there anyone in your sort of circle that was doing the same sort of thing as you? Um, None of my musician friends had kids when I started having kids. Um, So I was definitely kind of the odd one out there. And, and in grad school, I was the only woman in the program for quite some time. So there wasn't even someone going through grad school at the same time as me who was dealing with these issues. Um, I have plenty of women friends outside of music who have kids and families, but I think it, I think a lot of musicians wait until later on to start families because of that lack of financial stability. Um, And I I had a lot of help when our kids were young. Um, My parents were in the same town as us. And as I mentioned before, my mom really recognized the need for me to still have some space to myself, even if my primary role at the time was staying home and taking care of the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always had lots of family support with childcare. Um, Cause that's the other thing in the United States, there's no childcare via the government. Um, you got to wait until your kids are public school age, and then you can get rid of them for nine months out of the year. <laughs> um, did I really just say get rid of them? I meant <laughs> I meant we can all relate. <laughs> wave them goodbye tearfully at the bus stop and welcome them home with a hug. You know, there's there's no there's no support for for families and for kids when they're preschool age. Um, mm. So thankfully, I've had family because sending my kids to daycare or childcare would have been sort of a reckless financial decision to make because any money that I would have made would have been completely negated by paying for childcare. So, um, 
yeah, so that's kind of how I've how I've navigated the young the young children thing and dealing with that and being creative at the same time. Yeah, oh, I can definitely imagine people are going to hear this and definitely get some take something from it. And I I really hope that you do do your mentoring because that's just so valuable. It'll just keep it'll keep the creative everything going, and people won't have to. And I think when you said about before about asking a man. A man's got such different opinions on that stuff. Like they're not going to get, they're just going to get told some rubbish, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> it's not. And and I'm I'm sure there are wonderful, you know, male composers out there who would be great mentors yeah. for a young woman. But they're, you know, at least in my experience, there's something different about, you know, women speaking to other women. Yeah. And um I, I just, well, I haven't quite finished up this program yet, but um, I've been fortunate to be mentored myself by two wonderful women as part of Let's Be Spoken, which is a mentorship program specifically for women in the classical and jazz industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that was really key in sort of getting my composing and my professional career back on track. Mm-hmm. And to, to realize in these big group sessions that we would have with all of us and the, the two leaders, um, Gina and Unbi, we would kind of come to these realizations that we're all struggling with these same things. Like, oh, I have to do publicity photos. And I, like, how do I want those to look? And it's so hard as a woman versus like a man just throws on a suit and takes some photos and he's good to go. Mm-hmm. Women were like, is this going to be sexy? Is this going to make me appear sweet? Is this going to influence how people hear my music? Because it, it's just different as a woman. Um, and, and that program was really helpful. So there definitely are mentorship programs for women in the industry, but I, I am excited to eventually start something specifically for, for women to talk one-on-one with someone who's like cobbled together a career in composition because it's so different than being a performer mm-hmm. um, because the, the model for how you create your income is just not there. there. There's very little institutional support for it versus a performer. You can join an ensemble. You can be part of an orchestra. You can, um, you can create your own tours, right? You don't even have to have management to do that. Yeah. Whereas a composer, if my music's going to have a life, other people are going to be playing it. And that takes a lot of behind the scenes effort to make happen. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? It's like there's not there's not a model that says this is how you do it. You do this and then you do that and then it's done. Like it's just, yeah, yeah, there you go. Now, good on you. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Erica. It's been a real pleasure. It's yes, been lovely. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I have missed bedtime, so. Woohoo! <laughs> Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum.